0: Hello, and welcome to Generation AI, a podcast where we demystify artificial intelligence in the world of higher education. I'm your host, Artis Kadu, joined by my insightful co-host, Dr. JC Bonilla. We're gonna actually have a lecture today. Hello, JC.
1: Hey, how are you doing, Artis? Hello, everybody. Excited to be here today because we're going back to the basics. We love teaching, we love being educational, but one of the things that we know it's fundamentally important on AI it's to look at its precursors as disciplines, right? We spoke about advanced analytics and then it moved forward into data science and ML. And today we only talk about AI, if you will, but it's a really important discipline that you and I have been shaping. And I like to say that artists, you and I introduced a lot of the ML in the educational sector, higher education, specifically for enrollment management. And there's a ton of lessons learned that we want to unpack. So Stick around because the objective today is to give you the basics of what ML does so you can actually walk away with it and say, oh, and that's why AI does that thing because they are all part of the same family. But artists, before we go there, the past two weeks have been insane, insane when it comes to technology development. So we're here talking about machine learning. But today, we're actually days away from having the potential to touch in the most advanced vision, Kind of computer graphics generative AI solution out there. So what happened the past two weeks from
0: Google and OpenAI? Can you give everybody a little bit of preview of those crazy releases? Yeah, absolutely. So OpenAI released a text-to-video model called Sora. I love the name. And what it does, it produces video that can be up to 60 seconds long. The quality of the video is just amazing. And a lot of folks are actually freaked out because this can have a lot of different potential for, you know, essentially flooding our feeds with synthetic video that is really, really good. Killing Hollywood, or maybe? <laughs> exactly. The models are really great in terms of how they're representing real world physics, and they're able to represent the world model, which can actually make sense, right? So if you have, you know, two ships battling each other in a coffee mug, and that's one of the examples. It makes it really, really nice to see how it, you know, respects the physics and respects the lighting of all of that. So JC, there's another news that it's in your camp with Google introducing Gemini 1.5. Hmm. Google, look, first of all, why was that important?
1: Everybody, is within two hours of each other. So it's like, what's happening here? And for those of you who want to go deeper there, please check out days before where we actually walk through all of this stuff. Gemini 1.5 Pro, in a way, takes the computational power The ability to do LLMs to the next level in terms of speed, safety, you know, context window, and I mean, it's every feature that today dominates, if you will, the LLM capabilities, Google took them to the next level. It's really a technological achievement, and it's really, really exciting that in a way feels that it's released to the masses. Though Google 1.5 Gemini, right, seems to be ready for prime time We don't know what's happening with Sora, right? It probably is going to take some more time. So for those of us, it seems that we may need to wait a bit longer on Sora.
0: Yeah. In the meantime, enjoy the very cute puppies in the snow. All
1: right, Artis, let's
0: bring it back
1: to our conversation. And everybody, today we want to talk about ML, machine learning. Artis, I want to start with you. Let's do a teaching moment. I'm your kid and I'm going to come and say, Daddy, Daddy,
0: what's machine learning? How do you explain that? What is machine learning from Artis Kidoi? So machine learning is the ability for a computer to read a whole bunch of data, read a whole bunch of information, and come up with patterns within that information and making relationships between the individual data points within those hundreds, maybe thousands, millions of data points. A
1: hundred percent, right? And then you're alluding to the aspect of volume and you're also alluding to the aspect of there's this idea of training against. The most simple way for me to explain what machine learning is, it's you're given the solutions to a test to someone and you say, study against that because you know what a good answer is or a bad answer is. Of course, you're doing this at scale where machine learning is a computational technique that is going to come and say, I need to detect this being a one over zero, a true over false, a male versus female, a blue car versus a red car, an applicant versus a prospect a set of attributes of yes or no, or numbers, it could be binary, it could be classes, or it could be from one to a hundred. And then all the data preceding that, which is basically imagine an Excel sheet and thinking about, you know, every number of column you can have about that thing that you're trying to predict. And it learns which features are basically helping you contribute to that, right? And in a way it detects if there's contribution or not. So machine learning, as a subset of AI, it's one of the interesting computational techniques that allows computers to basically train and develop this type of machinery. Very, very, very important because at its most basic level, artists, we start thinking about classification. We'll talk about classification, regression models. All those things are subsets subset of machine learning. So a car that is driving today is making decisions of, should I turn left or right? Should I accelerate or accelerate? Oh my gosh, that's a wall. What do I do, right? All those decisions are microsets of ones and zeros, left, right. Accelerate accelerate, right? And that, at its best, it's
0: machine learning. Go ahead, Artis. So we talk a lot about generative AI in this podcast. However, this is the other way, which is predictive AI. So predictive AI is actually predicting an outcome of the future, whereas generative AI is actually making up that outcome of the future.
1: That's a great call because in this sector that we are trying to influence, right? With this podcast and this series, higher education, predictive analytics, right? It's a thing. And I would say majority of it is fueled by some of these techniques. Now, to become a master in the next half hour of machine learning, you need to dominate the following terms. We're going to give you terminology. First, the model. A model, it's basically what you output. In the most simple way, think about a simplified representation of the concept, the phenomena, and the relationship between what you're trying to predict and the inputs, columns in Excel, databases coming and basically looking at this is important, this is not important towards what we're trying to derive. The second one I will say is a target variable, right? This idea that that's what we're predicting. Enrolled, yes or no. Applies, yes or no. Should I give you a credit? Should I give you... A credit card? How much money am I going to loan you? Will you pay yes or no? All those types are examples of target variables.
0: So, JC, if I could ask about the model, would you say that the model is the equation or the formula and the target variable is X? And now we have to solve for X. Yeah,
1: 100%. I mean, let's go back to high school. Y equals MX plus B. Linear equations, right? Y is your target and X is what goes in. B? You know what we call that? The bias, <laughs> which is basically how your model starts rendering information. So we're talking about model induction as the process where all this just comes in. By the way, high school vibes: Y equals MX plus V, that's a linear model. That's the one thing that's going to happen really in machine learning, be a bit more sophisticated than our good old linear equation. Now, let's bring this to a little bit of, if a model needs to be produced, right, it's going to go through model induction we will always talk about the training part and the testing part. Artists, when you say, what's the training data? like What are you talking about when you tell engineers, give me training data, let's feed training data. Oh my God. When you and I build models, you gave me a hard time talking about training data all the time and creating that training data. So we want to come and talk about it. what is training data?
0: Yeah. So the training data is examples of data that you put in and you also have the output of that particular use case. So In order to build a model, you need to give it examples of how that formula works. Essentially, you give a lot of examples and you say, figure out the formula for this. So that's what we're trying to get to. The more training data that you have, the more you have an ability to figure out the pattern that evolves from that particular data and quantify that in a model or AKA equation.
1: We start our training models with training data where we know it's stuff that you know data set columns or rows or databases that we know have an influence to what we're trying to predict but the beautiful thing about training data is that you want to expose your model with as much as you want because machine learning you know what is the best to your point of you know detecting patterns to tell you whether this is significant or not in terms of data set so the bigger the better Let's go back to 2015, you and I are in cusp, big data shows up. What is the difference between training data and big data, right? Because everyone told you, oh my gosh, if I have it all, I'm able to look at that stuff. But there's a really interesting difference between big data and machine learning or this kind of training data set. You know what I'm going here for?
0: Well, if I hear you correctly, big data was... Call me professor. Sorry, professor. Sorry, doctor. There you go. (laughs) There you go. The idea of big data was that we now had a really large volume of data that we needed to load into our equations, and we did not know what features of this particular data were significant or not. So we needed to do a lot of testing across multiple data points on a particular example in order to figure out, is this going to contribute to that particular formula or not? before then we actually intuitively had to pick only certain variables and we called it small data even though we might have had thousands of different rows we called it small data because we were working with maybe if just a few variables and if you remember correctly you know in our predictive models that we built for admissions or enrollment some companies called this the basic six or the basic five and these were the variables that were the most predictive for enrollment and that was small data. For all the schools in the country. Oh my gosh, breaks my heart. For all the schools in the country. The big data came about and now you have hundreds of different variables or data points on a student that you could potentially derive a prediction by incorporating all of those different data points.
1: So 100%, I will say it with different terminology, but we're just basically narrowing on the same thing. Machine learning is a big data play. But unlike the big data play that we saw in the you know, 2010s, it was mostly correlational analysis that these things move together, right? Whereas machine learning is a predictive, causal type of inference indicating that this data that we're going to use for training contributes to the prediction. In other words, explains the variability of what we're trying to guess or assess. And that's why sometimes in machine learning is called likelihood of X, right? Applying and things like that. Because it us with a probabilistic number, right? The probability that it's going to happen. And that's basically the beautiful thing that happens with training data. It gets exposed to a model, but what it's really doing is a little bit of, it's a feature of importance. This is actually going to help me predict what we're trying to assess. So this happens over time, but the process of going from training data into an actual model is called model tuning, model validation. We can spend 10 podcasts just talking about this, but artists, I presented models to you. When did you tell me, go back <laughs> and it's not good enough? What were you looking at? What is model tuning, model validation in practice, and also, I guess, that's theory?
0: So when you build a model, you have to give it examples, like real examples and say, okay, this is the actual outcome. And based on these data points, can you come up with a formula or can you come up with the correlations between these different variables that are going to get me the closest to this particular outcome? And sometimes we called it, we used to call it overfitting, where we were solving for that particular outcome, but it was actually doing really, really well with our training data. But when we were testing it later on, It was not doing very well because it was only trained with a specific set of data. So I was looking for things that were very, very close to 100% because that means that essentially you have built a model that predicts only your data set that you trained it with. And it's not really good at predicting new data that's coming in in the future. So that was number one thing that we were looking at. Number two is that anything that was above a 50% probability of predicting something was okay, but the closer we got to 60%, 70%, 80%, those are really, really good models because now you can run and you can say, let's say eight out of 10 times, I'm gonna be able to predict that this is gonna be correct. So those are the things that we're looking for. Anything that's below 50%, it's no good because you can actually do a lot better by just flipping a coin or just doing a random prediction. And anything that was very close to 100 was probably not very good because it was you know, overfitting and it was not gonna perform well in the real world. Now, there's also bias in some of those models as well, and we can go back to that, and that's the part that we used to talk a lot about. But we'll talk more about bias a little bit later on. But those are the two things I used to look for. Was it in that sweet spot? And let me bring some COVID vibes here, right? When we talk
1: about model tuning, we know that we're gonna have five predictions, and we got three of them right two of them wrong, so that's called three out of five. So the performance, right, is three out of five, right? And you can quantify that. But then I made a prediction and it was wrong. So COVID vibes, you have COVID and you actually don't have COVID. So we'll start talking about false positives. We start talking about recalls and model sensitivity. So models have that nuance. Taking it out of COVID vibes, let me give you the best example that I can think of when I do this in class. If I'm predicting airline travel and I predict that you are going to be late, right? Three hours late, but you're actually on time. How do you feel? I feel great about it. Great, same prediction, but I predicted you're gonna be on time and you actually delayed three hours. How do you feel? I feel terrible they both wrong predictions. But what we're trying to see is that sometimes wrong predictions, depending on the recall or the sensitivity or what we call the class type that we have, can stir you in different positive and negative feelings. Same thing happens with COVID.
0: So can I use a different example? Please. So if we apply this to the work that we've been doing for a long time in predicting if a student is going to come or not, the probability of that student enrolling, you know, how can we apply that? If we're predicting a student is going to come, but they don't come, we are now a student short and the impact is much higher. Love that. But if we predict that student is not going to come and they come, that's actually good for us because we can handle the additional students. Or, right,
1: how you start thinking about waitlisting classes, you know, there's so many applications there. The point is a context, right? All right, last thing that we're gonna be doing here is you have a model, you calibrate it, you tuned it, and then you run it, and that's called the scoring process. The historical data has been used for training. You've basically done your reps. You have an idea that it does the right thing and it has accuracy in the context of what an error is. And then you basically run scoring, which is the idea that now you expose the model to no real time data and the model does what it's supposed to do. Retraining is a thing, everybody. And we're interested in having models basically get better over time, faster. And that's what is taking us to the LLM world today, right? The LLM world, in a way, is just basically this process that we've done with the training data is pretty much infinite, very unstructured, with new ones that is fascinating. And the statistical or computational methods that we throw are also very, very advanced. So just to give you a parallel of what we're talking about, why the fundamentals matter, because they translate really nice to LLM world. Okay? All right, is anything else to add before we go to our next section, which I'm so excited about? I think you got it, Professor. Just take us on. Thank you. Thank you. So artists, we're switching to our second part of this conversation, where now knowing the ingredients of what makes machine learning in a model, we just want to talk through building probably the model that we've built the most, I don't know, 57 variations of likeliness to enroll or apply lead scoring, if you will, yield modeling. Some competitors out there, very interesting ML deployments have mastered this. This type of model, you and I started, I don't know, was it like maybe in 2015, trying to understand how they work with regression modeling and logistical regression to the point that we left this model so everyone understands the conversation we're going to have with a tool that you press the button and would give you a good model and it would remove the 100,000 that needed then to basically bring a data scientist and create a custom model for it. That technology advancement is kind of what we saw over the course of almost 10 years. So we start with likeliness to enroll into apply. So let's remind everyone why it's called likeliness. Why do we refer to these models as likeliness to enroll, apply, be a prospect? Likeliness, what's that all about, artists
0: so all of these models are probabilistic, meaning that there is a probability of something happening. We can't know for sure hundred percent, however, we can approximate an outcome. And the closer we are to hundred percent of that, the better the models are. So when we talk about the prediction, it's a likeliness to occur for that particular event, because we're just predicting what's the percentage that this will happen, 60%, 70%, what are the odds, so to speak.
1: And you're doing a model, one of these predictive models. So you need to choose that probabilistic outcome on a target, enrolled, apply, or be a prospect. And it will be 0.33, right? Or 33% for artists, 59% for JC, and the target is enrolled. That means that JC has a high probability or likeliness to enroll. So let's pick enroll. The amount of applicants to enroll, you're kind of looking at a stage before. Or the leads to enroll. So everyone in this profession knows that if you have a hundred enrols, you probably have a thousand applicants. That's a ten to one relationship, right? If you have a hundred enrols, you may have ten thousand applicants, and that's what it's called class imbalance. These models have to be so good that learning out of a thousand applicants, that only a hundred will enroll. The things that models will do is that oh, I'm better at predicting the other nine hundred, not the ones that enrolled. So How do we trick the models so that you have a fair chance to predicting what you see less, in this case, the smaller, what is called the negative class, the enrollees, when it was at 10 to 1 out of 1,000 applicants, only 100 enrolled. How did we do that magic of machine learning? (laughs) It was called balancing the data set, remember? So what we rely on is this idea of oversampling one class or under sampling the other. So if you have a thousand applicants and only a hundred enrolled, what you do is that you can only sample maybe a hundred applicants randomly against a hundred. Now you have equal sizes, or you create this idea of like almost synthetic data. You oversample. You repeat the one hundred students nine times, so you end up with a thousand, a thousand. That type of technique. You and I operationalize tons of these models, and everybody check this out. Four percent. that was usually the class imbalance that we saw. In schools, very likely that that's what you have, that when you're predicting the same roles, your off balance is 92, 98 to 2%, 96 to 4%. In other words, for every 100 applicants, four enrolled. And it was a really interesting dance. You were the person who actually taught me about feature selection. So I, I want you to talk about feature engineering. Well, that's the other word that we used for training when you introduced those things. And it all started when you told me, can you come to Element and start building models for us because you've cracked this thing. You know, when you bring the model from radius, like distance to campus, you end up with this really different output and the model becomes so much better as opposed to using zip codes. And I was used to doing zip codes, which are like, I don't know, 51,000 variations and you made it into a number. So feature engineering, the art of transforming your data or the science of transforming your data, but it it became an art. So can you talk
0: to people about feature selection and kind of how that journey was for you? With feature selection... You mentioned it, it's a little bit of an art and a science, and the idea is what is the closest proxy and what do you think is going to affect that outcome the most? And in a lot of cases, you can throw a lot of data at it, but you're not going to be very, very good at it. So this idea of feature engineering, intuitively, how do you model the world? How do you see the world? And how can you simplify you know, that, that correlation very quickly? So when you look at a feature, what we tried to do quite a bit was how can we make sure that we are diminishing the possible variables entered in that particular feature? How can we eliminate things like what we called proxies from feature to feature? So proxies was distance to campus versus in state and out of state or zip codes. All three of those are gonna give me very similar results because they're all proxies for distance to campus. But now if I just use distance to campus, I'm able to better predict, I can move up based on radiuses, I can create different bands depending on business rules. So understanding the business was the number one thing for building features as part of your models. That's why sometimes if you worked with data scientists and a lot of folks said, hey, I really need a lot of data scientists to kind of solve this problem for me. But even though you put in a lot of data scientists, they were able to produce models that were not very good because they did not understand what was the business aspect or the domain knowledge in there. For us, it was very intuitive because we lived and breathed that every single day. We understood that you know, distance to campus mattered and it mattered in a sense that if somebody was 100 miles away, they were not going to drive to your open house versus if somebody was only 10 miles away, they were going to drive. If you're in New York City, 10 miles can make a huge difference because it means that you can be in Brooklyn and someone can be in Jersey or you can be in Staten Island or somewhere else and you will take them literally an hour and a half to travel those 10 miles in traffic. But if you are in a different state, 10 miles can just literally mean 10 minutes from campus. So you have to understand what the data is telling you, where you are, and how to intuitively connect that to the actual business. So those things that we intuitively understood can translate and can be really, really good proxies for feature engineering and picking the right features for your model. So you
1: historical data at school, you have you know, zip codes, so you can transfer them. You can do this basically feature engineering. As Artie is saying, you have financial aid data, you have, I don't know, religion status. You have so many important variables. That's that. But there's a nuance that you also introduced me to that I've never thought of. So here's the context, everybody. I am running an info session and I see that the person that sits in the very front, right, and comes with mom, dad, grandpa, and I don't know, the dog, and then comes later and asks me five questions. This student actually showed up. Right? There was this behavior that it was really easy in terms of pattern that indicated that, you know, little Johnny, because he is in the front with everybody in the family and the intensity of the questions, like, he's coming. So I- I'm like, I don't worry about, you know, Johnny. So you started looking at behavior in a really nuanced way. And I remember when you started saying, guys we have all the engagement data from when they open at emails and the amount of time and how many emails and it's been five days, how many times they've been to a website and behavioral aspect, it's what really makes a model now next level because the analogy is that you start sensing behavior, but at scale, you know, computers are much better at this type of pattern. So if, artists, how would you tell people behavior in like feature engineering, given this context that I'm talking about? So feature engineering and behavior, How did you end up with that, and where are we at with this type of models and behavior today?
0: Hey, everyone. Artis here, founder and CEO of Element 451. I'm thrilled to invite you to the Engage Summit in Raleigh, June 25th and 26th. It's our annual gathering where AI and higher education come together in exciting ways. A lot of the sessions will focus on cutting-edge AI that are reshaping student experience, they're enhancing staff productivity, and offering deep insights into your data. Imagine two days filled with hands-on sessions, real success stories, and the chance to network with top minds in the field. You live with practical, transformative takeaways as you learn how AI can foster a more personalized, efficient approach from recruiting to student success and even to alumni engagement. Oh, and the best part, Engage Summit is incredibly affordable. Try discount code in Enrollify 50, that's Enrollify 50, and you can register for just $99. So join me and many of my fellow Enrollify network creators at Engage Summit this coming June. Learn more and register at engage.element451.com. We can't wait to see you there. Before I do that, I want to highlight that looking at demographic data was very, very the state of the art, the state of the art, but it was also intuitively, you can connect a piece of demographic data and you can make sense of it. You can say, oh, this person is in state or out of state, right? Based on geolocation or based on program of interest. So you can make sense of it this idea of model interpretability is really important, right? So people wanted to understand what was the black magic behind these models in order for them to understand it. When we move to behavioral data, Behavioral data is a little bit different in the sense that you have a lot of different signals and essentially you're trying to model the behavior of a particular person and you're trying to figure out what is the patterns of those behaviors over a particular period of time. So you're modeling an action over time or the repeatability of that action over time. You open an email today, you open another one tomorrow, you open another one three days from now. You only did three actions. However, we can extract multiple features out of that. We can say, how long ago did you perform the last action? And that could be one of the features. What type of action did you perform last? That can be another feature. How many actions did you perform? That's another feature. So now we can look at behavior And we can model a lot of patterns from that behavior over many, many, many actions that you can take. When we extrapolate those actions over many people, really interesting patterns or really interesting behavior emerges. And now we can find out, like, if you perform this action, what's the likelihood that you're going to perform the next action and the next action and the next action? So that's how the idea of behavioral modeling can be much more powerful than, you know, static predictions based on demographic data. Demographic data doesn't change. However, behavioral data changes. And JC, tell us a little bit more about this idea of temporality in behavioral data. How important is it to predictions and what does it allow us to do?
1: I mean, that's the second definition of behavior, right? So behavior is something that you can proxy and it requires these data creative attributes. Like, you know, I, I think that the way you behave in email could be an unlock for predicting likeliness to apply or to enroll. But then when you look at behavior through the lens of time, behavior changes. So two applications, email. Do you know when I look at email artists?
0: I'm assuming at night and during the morning?
1: Only twice a day. When I wake up, I look at my email and usually at night, probably you do the same thing. Because throughout the day, I'm just basically in meetings and I'm not a smart, I cannot multitask. So I can read emails or have a conversation, right? So literally what you start seeing is that that behavior that you saw that it gets unlocked at 21 days since you open an email or whatever, That's really temporal. It's only happening in the morning and night. So now you have this other nuance of, and remember we used to call this in our engagement scores, a night owl or a morning person. Like we gave this color when people behave in the certain transactions and actions, right? I gave this analogy. once. One time I was giving a class to enrollment managers. I think you were there, by the way, on how to think about behavior. It's that you're trying to park a car and the best way to look at that is you have, you know, a very long street and there are potential, I don't know, a hundred slots that you can put your car, but it's always full, right? And then in front of my house, there's literally four spots that you can park. But if I come at between nine in the morning and 11, right? Those two hours, there's always a spot, right? So the chances of finding a park actually are higher in high probability for me to park if I just do it between nine and 11, Relative four spots to 100. That's also a way to start looking at behavior and temporal, that your chances of success increment two, three, five times X if you are able to land the temporal time of day signature. And time of day is hours, is days. There's a a myth that people open emails more on Thursdays and Tuesdays. I don't even remember that. And those are basically precursors of what feature engineering is as it relates to behavior and time. Artists, as I mentioned, it required creativity because you may have the historical data and then you need someone who thinks differently or you do not have the data and you have a hunch and you need to come and fetch that data. And that's basically the push and pull or feature selection. And data engineers is a profession and they're the best. Well, some of them are the best. that's kind of what they do. I want to go to model tuning. We spoke about one of the things about tuning and, you know, things of that sort. So I came to your world after doing, you know, data kind things, which is data for good and, you know, data science. And for the life of me, we never personalized a model unless it was 90% accuracy, right? And then all of a sudden we need to deploy models that are real time. And I remember our first model, it was not 90%. I'm not going to disclose what it was because, you know, we have personalized it. But it was not
0: 90%. No.
1: And technology sometimes needs to make these shortcuts, right? That it's better to predict something that totally go blind. You know, if you don't even know it. Just give me a recommendation. I mean, today, Amazon gives me a recommendation on the product. You think that it's 100% accurate? Obviously not, because I'm not buying everything that they, you know, probabilistically thinking I'm going to buy. So the hit rate of an Amazon recommendation engine for me is what, like 2%? But here it is doing its thing. What's your thinking on kind of model tuning and validity operationalizing as it relates to likeliness to enroll today with Element and all the gazillion permutations of models that you've done?
0: We're still relying very heavily on the behavioral models right now, JC. And one of the things why we do that is because of this issue that you mentioned around model tuning. When we start with a school, the school doesn't have clean data, doesn't have enough data. So the ability for us to do the same model over and over again around demographics is really, really difficult. And we're not going to get to those really high predictions. If we stick with behavioral data, we can actually do that. So we are then thinking about the problem of how do we make predictions for a client on day one? So this idea of the cold start It was something that we were trying to solve and it ties back to model tuning because, you know, you need to have a lot more data in order to tune your models and constantly improve as new occurrences are happening, you need to feed them back into the model. So the model is now learning from new data that's available. So model tuning then became more about how do we feed it new data constantly so we don't have this idea or this behavior of cold starts like we don't start with just like a baby with without any predictions right we needed to start with real data so for us model tuning was how do we feed in new data how do we look at perhaps new variables that are being introduced and how can we tune those variables? Is there more predictive features that we can introduce now to the models that can get us better results as part of that? But it's all a matter of experimentation, right? It's all a matter of kind of testing things out.
1: That point that you just, in a way, unpack, right? It's Taking us back 15 years ago, you and I, and who was doing this, one model per school, and you're retrained and you deploy, right? And today, when we actually do LLM type of AI, you know there, in a way, there's a global model.
0: One model for the whole world. For the whole world. There's no different GPT-4s, right? It's just one GPT-4 for for the whole world. (laughs) Right, but it's benefiting
1: from, you know, a new advance in machine learning, more with AI vibes, with neural nets that allows you to have global and then kind of way layers that localize, right? So the school approach can still be deployed with a, you know, old U.S. model for higher education, maybe one for graduate or undergraduate, whatever, and then you can start bringing the
0: vibes of school tier one, you know, in the East versus California, right? Let's unpack that. Yeah, yeah. Let's unpack that because, I mean, this is exactly what we did. So how do you take a model that is, you know, generalized or that is one model over all of the schools? How can you make that be unique for each individual school? Every school says we're unique.
1: Maybe the way you do it is you have your CEO read an academic paper and give it to the engineering team and it's like, figure this out. Does that sound right? Yeah, maybe a couple (laughs) of different
0: papers. (laughs)
1: Oh my gosh, that's exactly what we're talking about. We're just making fun of how we figured this out. I think you picked up a few techniques and like, this is it, this is the future, right? And then we in a way reverse engineer it, but sorry, I cut you off, but good vibes on how we did it
0: at Element. (laughs) One thing to keep in mind is for a product, in order for these models to scale, like we needed to deploy one model across multiple schools or multiple users. And the way that we did that is we introduced different variables that were predictive on each individual student type or each individual type of persona. So we kind of came up with these personas and cohorts that we modeled with Two or three or four or five different features that we introduced in there that could actually have the same behavior across multiple different schools. But at the same time, they were unique because we were able to model it at the cohort level or at the persona level. And one of the personas could be. Is this a graduate or undergraduate student? Is this a Northeast versus Southeast? Is this a West Coast person or Midwest person? Is this a career mobility play here? So what's the type of program? So we were able to model those differences between different schools and programs and, and personas as part of the features. And that allows us to deploy one model across a lot of different schools and be very accurate at that prediction rather than starting to build localized models that had the problems of cold start, needing a lot of clean data, things that like did not benefit from the large data sets that we already had across multiple schools. Again, some benefits to having larger scale data that you can do that, and some of these techniques that you employ, but we've evolved a lot since then, of course.
1: Since then, and as we were describing that in a way, it's the playbook that LLMs start with. All right, artist, last part, so we can then go into our takeaways of 10 years of learning here, right? So, I have the model, then you have to deploy it. So, let, let's talk about that. So, the model is here. We started with you get a model and you get to score all your applicants once, and a static number gets passed to JC 85%, artist 33%. So, I have a better likelihood to enroll. That's it, end of the
0: conversation. Now, that's not how it works today. So talk to us about scoring. So we talked about how we are constantly updating these models. As new data comes in, the model gets retrained maybe daily, maybe weekly, maybe a lot more often than that. So it's introducing new data to it. However, we need to keep the students that are in the system, they're being introduced with new data points and they're adding new behaviors every few seconds, every few minutes. So we need to constantly keep those scoring up to date. And the way that we do that is by converting all those features, creating all of those features over and over again, and passing that data to the model, and then saving those scores in different data points on the students. So now we have multiple predictions that are being saved on that student's record that signify different predictions for likeliness to enroll, likeliness to apply, likeliness to start an application or to even complete an application. So as the student performs more activities, we are constantly predicting what the most likely outcome is going to be. And that is a continuous kind of process. So we have a very, very fresh ability to act on that particular prediction.
1: Or one of the nuanced the things that happened, which now it's so interesting, right? Your model thought that field Distance to campus was super predictive and Artis, Kadui never entered his home address. So it was null, right? You don't have that data. Then you've come to an info session, you feel I have a form and then now it shows up. Now you can use that field. So the dynamic aspect of the model, the model strength or the scoring becomes better because you have better data as the journey of the student evolves, as it gets closer to a milestone that you're achieving and things of that sort. Last thing before we go into our kind of wrap up, which is lessons learned artists, I think we broke the internet, you know, the ML world when we start thinking about, you know, predicting one thing, like to roll, it's BS. Right? It's too difficult, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's doable. But we start talking about it's just like multiple stages in the word milestones became one of the things that we thought that was the next frontier. That's when I kind of left you. We're doing all these behavioral aspects, applying it to you know enrollment, but it's predicting likeliness to open an email, predicting the likeliness that you're going to show up, predicting the likeliness of X, where x is not a gigantic application status thing enrolled, <laughs> you know deferred deposit. It's just basically making a small milestone towards the big aggregate, which is applying you know enrolling things like that today. It's so obvious that you can do this staging, right? Multi-classes and sequential models. Where are you at with that? I left the world of element and building these models when we thought that was basically the next frontier. So we actually thought about it, having a cookie, my friend, and we called that next, right? Because there's
0: so many next steps. So where are you with that? Did that
1: actually get built, my friend?
0: So... The short answer is no, it did not get built. But the long answer is that that wasn't the problem that we were trying to solve. The problem we were trying to solve is what is the best nudge for this person to get them to the next stage? Because it's not a linear flow. It's a journey, right? Right, exactly. Exactly. So the idea of how can we influence their journey was the problem, not predicting what is going to be next. Because- Even though we can predict that, the ability for someone to influence that next step is very minimal. They need a lot of content. They need personalized content. Not until today are we able to generate content that is personalized and can actually perform actions that are personalized to that student. So what we're building today at Element is actually the culmination of the vision that we had this idea of next was not to predict what's next, but what is the next best nudge and the next best action that we can perform in order to move that student to the next milestone. And in this case, what we're building is think about if JC can look at every single record and because of all his knowledge of the field, He can come in and say, you know, Johnny is at this particular stage. He lives in New Jersey or he lives in North Carolina. He has these grades. I want to send him a personal message in order to kind of move him and and nudge him along to finish his application or to start his application. I'm going to make it very personal. I'm going to make it come from myself and maybe I can kind of bring a few things in there. Now, if JC is able to do that for every single student, every time you learn a little bit more information about that student to move them to the next stage, that is what our engine needs to do, the next engine. The promise of that is now possible with large language models and agents, what we call autonomous agents. So what we're building in Element today is this idea of autonomous agents. So we have these large language models that are very good at reasoning. We give it certain data points and we can say, based on this, what do you think is the best next action or the next best nudge that we can provide to get this person to do X and those large language models are able to reason through it and also create the personalized content that is able to do that. We have some prototypes today where we're completing things like tasks. The model is able to provide and say, okay, you need to provide an email or you need to write an email. And we have kind of a playbook of all these different things. So hopefully over the next couple of months, we will release this ability for having autonomous agents that we can tell, go ahead. And we need these people to move from this milestone to an apply milestone take a look at it every single day, every single minute as new data comes in, you know, predict or perform the next best action to nudge this person along.
1: A journey, it's individual and the nudges are unique. So this next stage of ML, machine learning predictions are basically multifaceted, individualized in terms of milestones and nudges, but also the content type that requires It's fascinating. I think I'm going to tell Gary tomorrow I'm quitting. I'm coming back to Element to finish that lovely chocolate cookie that we had in Dumbo, Brooklyn when we thought about the first generation.
0: <laughs> next. I think it might be more lucrative to be in the advertising world than higher education.
1: <laughs> probably, probably. But anyway, my friends, so let's wrap this up with over a decade of building these things and I hope you have enjoyed the evolution. And it's so serendipitous that we end up with now, next, and like how you implement it next. Artist, what have you learned if you were to give someone advice, and I'm going to give you three prompts, right? On feature selection, detection, or like the quality of the model, or even interpretation, which is, we didn't get much into interpretation, but what are your words of advice? And it could be one of them or all of them. Features, the model, and the interpretation. As someone who has won and lost many battles on model creation, and I'm going to do mine as well. So
0: you go first. Well... I think the interpretation is the biggest battle that we have right now. We have a lot of data, and you'd be surprised how many people are still at the stage where, hey, we need to just get our data all together, and then insight is going to come automatically out of that data. So a lot of folks are still in the, let's centralize all of our data so we can get some insight out of it.
1: Still trying to do a training data set play.
0: Exactly. Exactly. So my first recommendation is you have some business hunches. What are some of the predictors? Just start from there and then start small and then build from that. If you're doing models yourself, there's plenty of really, really great products and and libraries that you can use that makes it really, really easy. Of course, ChatGPT has Code Interpreter as part of it. And you can actually start building this regression models or whatever other predictive models or machine learning models just by English, right? You have certain hunches and you can upload your data and you can start doing some of that work in there. But that is the first thing that I would do is take a look at your data, make sure that you start small and then you start building from there, but having certain hunches. I like that.
1: Interpretation, definitely, it's an important one. So I'm glad you mentioned that. I'm going to chill a little. And as I hear you talk about it, I'm going to use the word adoption. I'm going to speak from my side. I have built, I don't know, more than 500 advanced analytics projects in my career. I don't even know how many, just so many of them, right? And then at this stage of my career, the math is the easy thing. I find the generating the model is easy. But it's the adoption is the hard thing. And you know what adoption is? It's not the mathematics, the p-value, the model accuracy. It's rendered on the people understanding, trusting the model, interpreting the model to your vibes, people, culture, process, and sometimes same technology, right? So I'd rather see a model that is adopted than a model that is perfect that no one uses. So adoption of a model is the win, not mediated by how good the model is, but how will the context, the fear, The culture of the people is represented in that model. And that's part of interpretation, model quality, features, all the things that we we spoke about. But at the very end of the day, knowing that models like this unlock human time resources. And we are complicated individuals, right? So if we need to make decisions, do I send this brochure, view book to this student? Do I put this student next to the dean in a dinner? All those are the things that these type of models, in a way, fuel and power. So it's important that we trust them and more importantly, we use them. So with that, my friend, I think this walk through the fundamentals of machine learning has been fascinating. I hope you all enjoyed it, my friends who are listening to it. And remember, you can email us. Probably best to go to artists at element451.com or artists, they can reach out to us into our podcast
0: landing page, which is generationaishow.com. And don't forget to rate and subscribe on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get this podcast. It's very, very important for us as we continue to drop more and more episodes. They're really fresh, very timely. So please, please subscribe and rate all of our episodes. Subscribe, rate, email us and drop a
1: note that JC has the best. hair. (laughs) Thank you, everybody. And we'll see you on our next episode.
0: Till next time. Generation AI is part of the Enrollify podcast network. If you like this podcast, chances are you're going to like other Enrollify shows too. Our podcast network is growing weekly, and we've got a wide range of marketing, enrollment, and higher ed technology shows that are jam-packed with stories, ideas, and frameworks, all designed to empower you to be a better higher ed professional. Our shows help higher ed leaders and professionals like you find their next big idea. They feature a selection of the industry's best as your hosts, like Jamie Hunt, Seth O'Dell, Jenny Lee Fowler, Brian Gross, and many of your favorite leaders in higher ed. Enrollify is made possible by Element 451, the next-generation AI student engagement platform that's helping institutions all over the country create meaningful, personalized, and engaging connections with their prospects and students. Learn more at element451.com.